Father God, thank you so much for this time we have to set aside for the sole purpose of getting to know you better, your son, the Lord Jesus, better through a look at your word that reveals yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, for your word that it never will perish, that it is eternal. Thank you that we can study it through, pray it in, live it out, and then pass it on. Thank you, Father, for the peace that you give to your children, the peace that passes understand, all understanding, regardless of the circumstances of our lives and our national life and the global situation, that we can have peace. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you're omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Thank you for the provision that you give to us. You meet every one of our needs, not our greeds, but our needs. Thank you for your eternal promises that we can bank on them. Thank you for that, Father. And now I ask that as we open your word and again look at this wonderful example you have given to us in your servant Daniel, so Christ-like, may we exemplify him as we try to exemplify your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, of course, perfect in every way. And thank you for the prophecy that you gave to um, us through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you how it tells us the end from the beginning so that we know how everything is going to pan out. And we know that one day your son is going to return and everything in this topsy-turvy world is going to be set right. And he is going to reign with perfect justice and righteousness for a thousand years before we then enter into the eternal kingdom. Lord, thank you that we do know how it all ends, and we don't need to be anxious about anything. Now, go before us and help your servant to um, speak clearly. Please, Lord, help me not to have any kind of a coughing attack so that we can have a smooth lesson. Help all of us to um, concentrate and focus on what you have to say to us this morning, for we do pray in your blessed name. Amen. I forgot to turn on the recorder, so just a minute. It's hard playing De uh, Terry. Pardon. Debbie, you were supposed to be waving at me. Were you waving? <laughs> Debbie and I, are two of us are trying to fill one person's shoes. I mean, that's hard. We never realize how much Terry does. Wow, we need Terry desperately. All right, this is lesson number 10 in our Daniel study. If you'll open up to Daniel chapter 2 in your Bibles, you're probably already there. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 35, only five verses this morning. Our lesson is entitled Dream. We're going to actually look at the dream today. Dream, a statue and a stone. Now, from the first 30 verses of Daniel chapter 2, we had learned that King Nebuchadnezzar had gone to bed worried and anxious about the future both for himself and for his mighty Babylonian kingdom. And while he slept, God gave him a dream that presented the future from his day all the way to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the 1,000-year kingdom on earth known as the Millennial Kingdom. Now, of course, King Nebuchadnezzar as a pagan, had no understanding whatsoever about the second coming of Christ, much less the first coming of Christ, much less on any understanding about the Christ. He had no understanding about the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, who we know this side of the cross would be the virgin-born son of God. 
Because his ancestral Babylonian forefathers had turned from the truths of God that all of Noah's descendants had once known, they had turned to instead worship false gods of their own imaginations, Nebuchadnezzar had no idea that there was one and only one God of heaven who had promised a coming savior for the entire world. He had no idea that this savior would be the king of kings over the entire world. So when he turned to other equally clueless men to help him know the meaning of his dream, all of the wise men put together of his entire kingdom, even combined with all the assistance that they used on a regular basis from the occult world, failed him miserably. They had no answers, did they? Just like he had no answers. So the frustrated and furious king, in a fit of misdirected power, issued a decree that they were all to be executed, cut into fine little pieces, and their houses made into dung hills. And that death decree we discovered also included our friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, because they had been elevated to the position of royal advisors of the king at this point in time. However, before the decree was carried out, Daniel was providentially able to secure what? Time. Time. The one thing he refused to give the wise men, Daniel was able to get. He got time from the king, and he and his friends immediately besought the mercy of God in prayer. They did not expect to receive anything from God without first asking for it, praying for it. Nor did those young Hebrew men expect a divine answer to their threefold request simply because they somehow deserved it as children of God. You know, based on their merit, we deserve this. They did not approach God like that at all. They knew how desperately they needed God's mercy. Isn't that what we need desperately every single day? We depend on the mercies of God. And Daniel was not going to rely simply on his gift he knew by this point in time that he had a gift given to him by God to interpret dreams. But he wasn't just going to rely on his gift apart from God. Plus, he needed a miracle beyond the use of his gift, didn't he? Because he needed the revealer of secrets, the omniscient God of heaven, to show him the dream itself before he could then use his gift and interpret it. So Daniel, with his friends, got on his knees because he knew how desperately they all needed, because he and his friends are all under the death decree too, he knew they knew how they needed God's merciful intervention. And did God intervene? Who had orchestrated this whole thing to begin with? Who planned to answer their prayer to begin with? He just wanted them to ask, but he had already planned to give Daniel the dream. He intervened. He answered the united prayer of his faithful servants that very night by giving Daniel in a night vision. He was awake when he saw the same dream, the exact same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. And, um, well, before we get into that, after first, you know, when he got the dream, what did he do? Did he immediately run into the king to tell him the dream? What did he first do? This was so important. First, 
they all, he woke up, if they were sleeping, woke up his friends, I don't know if any of them were sleeping, they probably had an all-night prayer vigil, but they all fell on their knees and they praised God in a scripture-packed, theologically accurate, and even Christ-foreshadowing prayer of praise, a hymn of praise. We looked at that in verses 20 to 23. So we ended our last lesson then, after that prayer of praise, then he goes to Arioch, and Arioch takes him before the king. We ended our lesson with Daniel standing before the king. And the first thing he says to the king is he makes sure that, that uh, the king remembers that despite his powerful dictatorial demand with a death threat attached, Daniel reminds the king that all of his wise men put together could not make known to him the contents of his dream. Remember that? You know, he wants to make sure he remembers. Remember, all your wise men couldn't give you what I'm going to give you. But, you know, there's, there's still hope. There is hope, king, because then he says, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. In fact, he goes on and says, it was that very God, the God in heaven, who gave you that dream to begin with. And he did so in order to answer the concerns you had when you went to bed. The concerns about the future. The omniscient, omnipotent God of heaven gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream to show him, what does it say in verse 28? What shall be in the latter days? That's what the dream is all about. The latter days from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the yet future Second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing prophecy, isn't it? And when we study it, we look at it, we'll see how amazing it is because everything he predicted, all the succeeding empires actually happened in history. You know, Medo-Persia followed Babylon. Greece, the Greek Empire followed the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Roman Empire followed the Greek Empire. And that's why the critics of Daniel have to get rid of him, because it proves God, who knows the end from the beginning. Anyway, it's an amazing prophecy, the most amazing prophecy, along with chapter 7 in all the Bible, as far as expansion is concerned. It's what they call the ABCs of eschatology. Without this dream, you don't really understand the book of Revelation. It's, it's the ABCs right here. So then in his genuinely humble manner, Daniel made sure that the king understood that it was not by his own wisdom, not by Daniel's wisdom, it wasn't by, about anything concerning Daniel that he came to know the contents of the king's dream, which he would soon reveal to the king along with then its interpretation. He made sure Nebuchadnezzar understood from the get-go that God was the source of the dream, that God was the revealer of the dream to Daniel, and that God was also the interpreter of the dream. Daniel was simply the willing, obedient, God-chosen channel. What an example of humility for us, right? Well, in this lesson, Dream, a Statue and a Stone, we're going to be discussing the contents of the dream as given by Daniel in chapter 2, verses 31 to 35. And the interpretation, which we're going to be looking at in lessons future, um, is given in verses 36 to 45. So in a nutshell summary of the dream, 
Very easy, here it is. Nutshell summary of the dream. It concerned a colossal statue that was utterly destroyed and replaced by an uncut stone. That's it. A colossal statue destroyed and replaced by an uncut stone. And as we discuss these five verses, first of all, we're going to look at the statue's description. That's in verse 31. It was man-like. It was the statue of a man, not of an animal or a bug or whatever. It was actually the statue of a man. It, so it was man-like. It was massive. It was mostly metallic. And it was monstrously terrifying. Then we're going to look at the statue's devolution. Devolution, what does that mean? Devolution, as I'm using it in this context, is backward evolution. D, you could say it like this, de-evolution. The statue demonstrates that life on earth is not getting better that is not getting closer and closer to perfection. Life is not advancing toward mankind's self-attained utopia. Just turn on the news. <laughs> um, rather, mankind, the kingdoms of this world, is headed toward destruction on a global level. And it would be self-destruction on a global level without the intervention of the stone, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interpreting. I you know, can't help but jump to the interpretation part of it from time to time. From head to toe of this image, there is a notable decrease in the various elements, beginning with gold, going down to silver, uh, brass or bronze, then iron and iron mixed with clay. So there's a decrease in the elements. There's also a decline in the value of those elements, in the position of those elements, head to feet. The atomic weight or the specific gravity weight of those elements, and we'll talk about that. And there is a decrease in the malleability or the suppleness, the flexibility, the pliability of those elements. In other words, they get harder as they digress downward. So that's going to be the devolution of the statue. And then we're going to look at the statue's destruction, verses 34 and 35, which comes about because of this stone cut out without hands. And then, lastly, in the end part of verse 35, we're going to look at the stone's dominion as the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the entire earth. So let's look now at the dream itself, verses 31 to 35. If you'll look with me, starting at verse 31, Daniel, standing before the king, says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. 
and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the king's dream was about a colossal, dazzling, bright, awesomely frightful image, a statue of a human figure that stood before the king. The head of the statue was made of what? Fine gold, solid fine gold. The breast and arms were of silver. The belly and thighs were of brass. Actually, it would have been bronze because uh, bronze was the copper tin alloy that was used in ancient uh, Babylon. Its legs were made of iron and the feet were a strange combination of iron and clay. Now the clay is not soft clay, like, you know, putty clay. Um, it, actually, the, the Aramaic word is baked clay, clay that had already been baked in the oven. So it's hard, brittle, baked clay like a piece of pottery. That's strange to put iron and baked clay in a piece of pottery together. I don't know how you put those two together without super glue, right? <laughs> how do you adhere the two of them together? While staring at this colossal statue of his dream, um, Daniel tells us that the king's attention was drawn to a stone. And the stone, Daniel says, was supernaturally made because it was made without human hands having cut it out. Cut it out from what? Well, he doesn't tell us here, but if you take a sneak peek at verse 45, we find that it was um, from a mountain. But no one, no human hands, cut it out of that mountain. It cut itself out of the mountain. So it just speaks of supernatural. It was supernatural. It, and it was a stone without any human hands holding it and, you know, throwing it at the image. It simply appeared suddenly on its own. And it propelled itself through the air, kind of like a guided missile. And it landed bullseye right on its target, which was what? The feet. The feet of the image. It was a smiting blow because the iron mixed with baked clay feet then shattered to pieces and the entire image just collapsed to the ground. The whole statue basically imploded on itself. And the pieces of it, whether they were gold, silver, bronze, iron, whatever, the pieces um, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. A wind came up and carried away all evidence that it had even been there. It was just like obliterated, annihilated. There wasn't a trace of that once terrifying image left anywhere. And the stone that smote this image then took the place, you know, where the image had once been. It started to grow. It grew into a mountain, like the one it was cut out of without hands, it grew into a mountain, and the mountain filled the whole earth. That was the dream. Now, if you think Daniel had the king's undivided attention back in verse 29, when he had told the king what he had been thinking about that night when he went to bed, and I'm sure he had the king's attention because he'd say, how does this young guy know what I was thinking about when I went to bed? But if you think he had his attention then, he really has the king's full focus now. Lock, stock, and barrel. I think, who do you think was watching the king's face more than anyone at this point in time? Who's in there with Daniel and the king? 
Arioch. I think the whole time Arioch is watching the face of the king. And I believe he got very excited the minute he saw his jaw drop when Daniel said, you dreamt of a great image. Because the minute he heard the great image, Nebuchadnezzar knew, this guy knows my dream. And I think Arioch was a very happy camper. Because remember, <laughs> he's thinking, I'm going to get a reward for this. Because he wanted to claim, remember, he said, I'm the one who found this guy. So if anybody's happy right now, it's Arioch. Um, so let's look now more closely at the dream. We're going to break it down into those four sections I just talked about. The statue's description, its devolution, its destruction, and then the stone's dominion. Daniel began his report of the king's dream with a description of this image, this statue. He began by, first thing he talks about is the great size of it. It was huge. It was massive. It was colossal. Two times, you notice in verse 31, Daniel calls it a great image. Now, the word image simply means statue. It's just, you know, it's a statue. Um, but the, the word great is actually, there's two different Aramaic words used for great in that sentence. We only see it like one because both times it's translated great. But both of those different Aramaic words stress the tremendously mammoth size of this statue. It was just, I can't think of another word except colossal. <laughs> and it would have appeared even larger to the king because of the fact that he was standing in close proximity to it. If you see something really tall and huge from a distance, it looks smaller, doesn't it? But Daniel says that the king, it stood before the king, and that means it was right close up. So something looks a whole lot bigger when you're standing under it and looking up at it, right? So it was just tremendous. The statue, he says, was also brilliantly shiny to look upon. He says, whose brightness was excellent. That speaks of superior brightness. Apparently, the light of the sun, you know, the hot Babylonian sun. And remember, Babylon is where? In a desert. Hot, always sunny. The, the sun shining on the gold and the silver and the bronze sections of the statue made the brightness of the statue almost blinding. And another thing to notice is that, of course, the statue did what all statues do. It just stood there. <laughs> really boring. <laughs> I mean, it didn't say a word, did it? It wasn't doing a dance. It was just standing there as all idols and statues. You know, they have no life, so there's no movement whatsoever. However, the combination of the size and the brilliance and the terrible form, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but apparently uh, that maybe, maybe the countenance of this statue was very fierce because it was terrible to look at. It was terrifying. My, my little drawing is, I wish I had made it more terrible looking. <laughs> he looks pretty calm in that picture, but um, the combination of those things, size, brilliance, terrible form, made it very obvious to this absolute dictatorial monarch of Babylon. It was very obvious to him that this statue represented something very, very great. Now, I think that in his mind, when he went to bed, he was worried about his future and his kingdom. I think that he thought somehow this represented him. 
And then when Daniel goes ahead and gives him the interpretation, even though he says the head of gold is you, king, somehow Nebuchadnezzar in his egomania thought that the whole thing represented him because he does go ahead and build a giant statue that's all of gold in chapter 3, and he has everyone in his kingdom bow before it. And three guys won't do that, you know, remember? Um, so I think that he thought that this whole statue represented him, and the thing that troubled his spirit so much that he had insomnia was the fact that the whole thing came tumbling down. I think that's what troubled him. That's why he was so obsessed about wanting to know the interpretation of this dream. Now, that's just my speculation on it, but... I think it's a pretty good guess. All right, well, think about this. God was preparing to speak to a Gentile king, actually the very first Gentile king of the time period that this whole image represents, known as the times of the Gentiles. Jesus is the one who gave it that title in Luke 21, 24. So God's preparing to speak to the first king of this time, and he does so by using a picture language that the king could understand what was Babylon saturated with. What was one thing it was saturated with? Idols, statues everywhere to gods and goddesses. Nebuchadnezzar himself was an idol worshiper. I have never understood how anyone can worship something that can't move, has no life. You know people that made it <laughs> with their own hands. You know, um, and the only way it can move, move is if you pick it up and put it somewhere. How anyone can bow down before something like that and worship it? I have never, ever understood that. Even as a child, when I was told to kiss icons in my church and do the sign of the cross in front of icons and statues, I never, ever could do it. I thought, this is total foolishness. But... The world has always been full of idol worshipers, and Nebuchadnezzar was one of them. So God spoke to him using an image. The size of it to the king would represent power. You know, the bigger the statue, the greater it must have power. That's why he builds in chapter 3 this giant statue. Um, the precious metals of it, the gold, silver, bronze, etc., would represent to the king wealth. He builds his statue totally of fine gold. And the gleaming brilliance of it to the king would represent splendor. The terrible form, fear. You know, if there's one thing you want to do when you're a powerful monarch is instill fear in your subjects. So power, wealth, splendor, fear. Those are the criteria by which godless people judge the great world empires. Furthermore, it was in the image of a man, not a beast of the field, not a fish, not whatever, not a tree. It was in the image of a man. We know this because of the body parts. It had a head, arms, chest, abdomen, legs, feet, etc. The empires of this world are all what? The kingdoms of God or the kingdoms of men? They're all, they've all been the kingdoms of men. They have not been God-centered, but man-centered. They have oppressed, they have subjected, and even persecuted the people of God, whether the Jewish people or Christians. They have placed their kings and their rulers, their leaders, on the thrones of those kingdoms, and not the true sovereign, God. 
However, when all is said and done, those kingdoms are as worthless as the colossal statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and as all the idols of this earth that people have ever bowed before. They all stand there motionless, deaf, and dumb, lifeless, in their complete inability to understand the inevitable, utter destruction that awaits the entire structure when Christ, the rock that they did not build upon from earth, from the bottom heavenward, returns and pulverizes the entire godless system of this world. That's going to happen one day. The whole godless system of this world is going to be pulverized to powder, blown away, and it will be like it never even existed during the millennial kingdom. By the way, where did this whole godless world system begin? Where is this image standing? It all began in Babel, didn't it? Genesis chapter 10. Interesting. Well, later on when we get to Daniel chapter 7, and you can see this because I've got the little beasts, my little awful artwork beasts there on that picture. Um, We're going to find a parallel prophecy in chapter 7 picturing the same period of time, the times of the Gentiles. However, it was given not to a pagan king. It was given to God's servant Daniel in a night vision. And therefore, the parallel prophecy of the times of the Gentiles that we're going to have in chapter 7 is presented from God's perspective on how he views the kingdoms of the world that have dominated and oppressed his people and many other people as well. And he doesn't see them as awesomely magnificent in their wealth and their splendor and their power and worthy of man's uh, awe and reverential fear, does he? That's not how he sees them. He sees them as wild, vicious, bloodthirsty, and dreadful beasts of prey, which is really what they are. Well, after giving the general appearance of the Colossus, Daniel then proceeded to describe the composition of the mostly polymetallic statue. I say mostly metallic because the baked clay obviously is not a metal. but Mostly it's made of metal. Um, And he gives that in each of the body regions, starting from the head and going down to the toes. Now, it's interesting to note how there is this definite deterioration in the value of the elements, in the position of the elements, in the unity of um, the body parts, starting with one head down to ten toes. Um, And there's this deterioration in the weight of the elements, And as I said before, the malleability, the suppleness of the elements. They get harder as they digress. Now, there is a five-fold description here in our passage, a five-fold description in the composition of the statue. But what is interesting, again, if you look ahead, look at verse 41 in the interpretation, we learn that there there actually was a sixth part of the image. All right? Here we're only given five parts, but altogether there really were ten parts of this image. The sixth part is its ten toes, which, like the feet, also consisted of a mixture of iron and baked clay. Now that's interesting because what does the number six represent in the Bible? 
man. Man was created on the sixth day. Man always falls short of the glory of God. He always falls short of perfection. Perfection is represented by the number seven. We know the Antichrist number is 666, you know, anyway. But that's the number of man. How very, very appropriate it is for this statue um, that represents the kingdoms of men to consist of six parts. First of all, there's the head of gold. That's one, okay? Then there's the breast and arms of silver. That's two. The belly or the abdomen and the thighs of bronze. That's three. The legs of iron are four. The feet, part iron and part baked clay, is five. And then the ten toes is six, six parts. The value of the elements also decreases in their worth. Generally speaking, gold is more valuable than silver. And silver is more valuable than bronze. Bronze is more valuable than iron. And iron, of course, is more valuable than baked clay. There's also a corresponding decrease in the specific gravity weight or the atomic density weight for each descending metal or element. In other words, gold is much heavier in its, in its specific gravity weight meaning its atoms are denser together, than silver. So gold is heavier than silver. Silver is heavier than brass or bronze. Bronze is heavier in its density than iron. And iron, of course, is heavier than baked clay. Here's, I'm going to give you, and you could write these down if you want to, but it will be in your email lesson that you'll get later on today. But here's the specific gravity weight for each one of these metals. Okay, gold its weight is 19.5. This means nothing to you right now, but it will when I'm done. Silver is 10.47. Bronze is 8.5. See how they're getting less and less in their weight? Iron is 5. And baked clay is 1.93, roughly 2. So this decreasing weight factor of the great image means what? It means it is very top-heavy, <laughs> very precariously top-heavy, that the gold head is twice as heavy as the iron and clay of the feet. That's why my statue, I know it looks weird, but I have little tiny feet on it. Those feet should be bigger, but I'm trying to show that it's precariously balanced, and its head weighs more than twice as much as the feet. The various elements also decrease in their malleability, their pliability, their suppleness. In other words, they get harder, they get less malleable as you proceed down the statue. Gold is most malleable. You know, it can form gold into all kinds of things, all right? Um, it's the least hard element, and of course, iron is the hardest. Iron mixed with baked clay or pottery is not supple at all. In fact, baked clay is extremely brittle. Just take a piece of pottery and drop it on tile floor and see what happens. The word at the end of verse 42 of Daniel 2, where it's translated as broken in the King James, that is actually the Aramaic word for brittle. So, you know, the, the baked clay is brittle. And then, as I said, also, there is a decline in the unity a basic decline in the unity of the body sections of the image. It starts out with one head. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch, but then Medo-Persia came, and it was a divided kingdom, and you go all the way down, and you end with how many? It's divided, ten toes at the end. 
Well, considering the combination of the decreasing weight factor and the malleability of the statue's elements, we come to realize that this terrifying, supposedly powerful image in reality is a massive, top-heavy structure hazardously balanced on brittle, lightweight feet of clay. Feet of clay. It might impress man, right? Men might bow down before it, but God says it's fragile, it's precariously put together, and it's in a constant process of deterioration, and it's very, very prone to toppling over. And where did it stand? Where was it standing when Nebuchadnezzar, in his dream, where would it be standing? On the sand of Babylon. What's that make you think of? Don't build your house on sand, the sinking sand. It's, it was standing there on the sand of Babylon. That's significant because Babel, as I said, Babylon is the origin of all godless world systems. The statue, you see, was not built upon the rock foundation of God and his word and his promised savior who is the rock. The six-part image is a word picture of man's rule on earth, a prophetic history of world empires. That picture is one, it's a deteriorating one. It gets worse and worse. It's going to get really worse in the tribulation, isn't it? Is man waxing better and better? No. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. This image is biblical. Well, it is in the Bible. God gave the dream. But it fits, you know, the whole Bible picture of everything. It, what it doesn't fit is the evolutionary model, which is also a man-centered, man-made, colossal idol before which the world at large bows. Evolution is a man-made idol, and most of the world bows before it in ignorance. Well, here I want to insert a parenthetical truth that relates, to, that relates this image of Nebuchadnezzar's God-given dream to the reality of history, past, and also the reality of science. Okay, but let's start with history. With regard to history, I want to read to you the words of a man named Alexander Tyler. He lived at a time when the 13 colonies of America were still part of Great Britain. So in other words, when he wrote the words I'm going to read to you, America was not yet a nation. There was no U.S. of A. Also, what he wrote about was the, the rise and the fall of the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. And I tell you that up front because when I read these words, you might otherwise have thought he was re writing about the United States. Here's what Mr. Tyler said. He said, quote, a democracy cannot exist in a permanent form of government, as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves excessive salaries from the public treasury. Well, I should say the politicians. <laughs> from that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy. Hmm, how much do we owe right now? $19 trillion? 
always followed by a dictatorship. That's scary. He says the average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been about 200 years. And these nations have progressed through this sequence. Are you ready? Here's the sequence. It's very interesting. Think of America. Bondage to spiritual faith. Spiritual faith to great courage. Great courage to liberty. What was that in our history? The Revolutionary War. Liberty to abundance. Abundance to selfishness. Selfishness to complacency. Complacency to apathy. Apathy back to dependency and dependency back to bondage. And then the whole thing starts over again. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Where do you think America is in that cycle? (laughs) Really far down. A democracy, <coughs> you know, only works. A democracy, because that's a, a, a government of the people. We the people, right? And a democracy of the people can only work when it is founded on the principles of God's word. Because once you get away from the absolute foundational truths of God's word, the whole system falls apart. Because then everyone will be doing that which is right in his or her own sight. Right? That's what happens. Rather than the sight of God. You take away the Bible and a democracy does not work. But that really shouldn't depress us. It shouldn't depress us because democracy's failure is absolutely no reflection on God. Democracy is not his perfect form of a government. Is a majority of people usually right? No, (laughs) the majority of people are usually proven wrong. It's just that few, the few that trust in his word that are right. His form of government is a theocracy, not a democracy, um, a government that is ruled by him. Actually, the only perfect government that this world ever saw And it really wasn't in a government form, but that was back in the Garden of Eden. And the the one that this world will see again in the Millennial Kingdom is what we could call a theocratic, God ruling, a theocratic, benevolent dictatorship. When Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is ruling over the whole world, um, takes up his rightful throne there in Jerusalem, rules over the whole world with perfect justice and righteousness, and he's a benevolent dictator. I mean, what he says is final, that's it. But he's benevolent because he'll never say or do anything that isn't for the good of all. So that's God's form of perfect government. But when anything is built on the might and the wealth and the splendor and the power and the wisdom of men, it's men, it's built for dissolution. It's built to one day come tumbling down. It's subject to the same deterioration process that man himself has suffered ever since the fall. And as sad as that is for uh, those of us who love our democracy, and really our nation is a republic, but um, 
As sad as that is, it shouldn't really shock us because the nations of this world and the kingdoms of men have all gone the way of all flesh, except for the miraculous resurrection of one nation, Israel. All the empires of this world have ultimately ended in collapse and or submission to another. The, the one hope I would say for America, and this is is exciting to think about. Besides Israel, there's only been one nation in the entire history of civilization that was actually founded on rock, not on the sinking sand of this world and its world system that started in Babel. Our nation was founded on the principles of the Judeo-Christian faith. That's rock. Our nation was founded on the absolute truths of God's word. And although a vast majority of Americans today now scoff at that truth and try to even alter the history books, yet perhaps the Lord knows the truth. Perhaps he will somehow mercifully honor our founding fathers and the many faithful Christians who have preceded this present evil generation by not obliterating us from the world scene. Wouldn't you hope for that? Because we were built on rock. So I do have hope for this nation I love so much. History itself has taught that things are not as the evolutionists would want us to think, not as they're trying to brainwash us and our children and our grandchildren to think, which is that man is ascending that he is improving, that he is getting closer and closer to perfection and utopia. Mankind is not getting better at all. And history has been a devolutionary process all along. He's descending, as that cycle shows you. The historical records show a succession of defeats after you know, kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation begin. Uh, they grow, they reach a peak, and then they fade and die, and another nation or kingdom comes along as, and is built on the ashes of the one that preceded it. That's what this whole image shows us. Well, that's a little review of how history supports this image, but what about science, true science? Well, there is a law of science that the evolutionists don't like very much. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. And it is a scientific law that no one can refute that states that all matter is in the process of winding down. All things are in the process of decay. It started, you know, with the fall. The stars, our sun included, are burning themselves up and they will in time be exhausted. They'll burn up. They'll burn out. The speed at which our earth is spinning on its axis, you know, is slowing down. Gradually, but it is slowing down. The bodies of all living creatures, here's the bad news too, age. Bodies of all living creatures age. They do not get younger. Wouldn't that be nice? The more we're on planet earth, the younger we get. We wind up being a baby again. <laughs> Uh, they don't get younger and more vibrant. Everything, everything is affected by this law, which flies right in the face of evolution. Nebuchadnezzar's God-given dream image 
also exemplifies this scientific principle because it shows the deteriorating progress of history as mankind has moved from one kingdom to another. Now, if you look at your image, tell me where we are in the 21st century. Where are we as far as this image is concerned? Obviously, we're not living during the time of the Babylonian Empire, right? The head of gold. Where are we on the image? Exactly. We are living down there at the feet of clay, period, of this image. So, in case you wonder why this whole world seems to be on the verge of toppling over, that explains it. We're down there, and those brittle, weak feet of clay. In Revelation 11.1, 1, we are told that Jerusalem will be tread underfoot by the nations under the Antichrist and his ten-toed confederation, whether that's a confederation of groups of nations or a confederation of individual nations, I don't know yet, but um, we're told that Jerusalem will be tread underfoot for the horrific final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, and those final three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation. So it will not be, see, Jerusalem will still be under the times of the Gentiles in the tribulation all the way to the end. It will not be until the Lord Jesus himself returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation, at the time of the Battle of Armageddon, to wipe out the nations that have gathered together to annihilate Israel, the apple of his eye, um, that finally, what began with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, finally the times of the Gentiles will end. So we're in the times of the Gentiles today. Israel is in her land but she can't even, she doesn't own all the land promised to her by any means. The world keeps even taking little pieces of what she does have away from her. She doesn't even have her temple to worship in because there's a mosque standing there. I mean, she is not at all, she's still underfoot of the Gentiles who surround her and want to obliterate her, right? So we're still in the times of the Gentiles and it won't end till the second coming of Christ. Now the book of Ezekiel, you know, was written during the same time as Daniel, which was at the beginning of this times of the Gentiles. Ezekiel was a prophet priest who was a contemporary of Daniel. And through him, God gave the account. He actually allowed Ezekiel to see in a vision God's Shekinah glory departing from Israel. Remember, I think it's like in Ezekiel chapter 10, he sees the Shekinah glory lift off between the two cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, and it goes out the top of the temple, and then it departs through the eastern gate and down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, and then it just goes back to heaven, and Ichabod is written over the nation of Israel. What does Ichabod mean? The glory has departed. By that God-given, by that... Um, by that vision and by the God-given dream of Daniel chapter 2, we see God transferring the leadership of this earth from the Jewish people and their homeland over to the Gentiles. With the Babylonian captivity, Israel took a back seat on the world stage, and she has not yet returned to her former glory. Not even yet today. 
Although she is returned to her land, yet she is still in unbelief. Like the valley of dry bones, you know, she's standing there and she looks resurrected, but she yet has no spiritual life breathed into her. And that spiritual life will not come until she looks on the one whom she pierced at his second coming when the stone returns and crushes the times of the Gentile statue and saves her, she's going to look on him, realize that Jesus, the one she pierced, is her true long-awaited Messiah. She's going to repent and Israel shall be saved. God will keep all his covenant promises with his people. Amen? Amen. Now, Israel, we know, should have been the witness to the whole world in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times. In the Old Testament times, the sons, of daughter, sons and daughters of Israel were to tell everyone on earth the good news. Yes, there was good news in the Old Testament, just like the good news of the gospel today. They were to tell, and that's why God put them in the center of the land masses of this earth, so she they could be his witnesses to tell everyone of Jehovah, the one and only true God of heaven, and his promised Savior for the whole world. However, and this sounds really strange, but rather than being Jehovah's witnesses <laughs> to the world, the Jewish people of Daniel's day had been playing for centuries, playing adultery with the false gods of the pagans, right? And at this point, you know, time of Daniel and Ezekiel, they were only giving lip service to the true God. They had failed miserably in their God-assigned duty. So after much patience and many unheeded warnings through his servants, the prophets, the Lord finally had had enough and he took them by way of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. He used Nebuchadnezzar to take them as captives into Babylon, the seat of idolatry. You like idols so much? I'm going to saturate you with idols until you get sick of them. And then he gave Babylon's greatest king a dream that described in picture form the sequential Gentile world empires that would have dominion or oppression over Israel from that time until his ultimate deliverance of her in the second coming of Christ. And he even described in picture form with a colossal statue and an uncut stone how it all will end. God gave this prophecy at the beginning of the times of the Gentiles because he wanted his people to know. He wanted Israel to know that being under the authority and the dominion and the oppression of Gentile powers was not to be a permanent situation. It's, gonna, it's gone on a long time, but he wanted them to know it wasn't going to be permanent. Um, if if they thought it was over for them permanently, they would begin to question the credibility of God because repeatedly God had told Israel he would never forsake her. He had promised her that he would keep his unconditional covenant promises to her. He said he would never forget Jerusalem. So no longer was Israel in captivity, then God revealed the fullness of his plan from beginning 
to end so Israel would know that he would not ultimately fail her in his promises. You get that? All right, we're almost done. The statue's destruction. In verse 34 and 35, he states that a stone cut out without hands, which means that it came from God. It came from a mountain, which is the mountain is the kingdom of heaven, um, came without human power or assistance, and he appears suddenly on the scene, or this stone does. With the arrival of the stone, all of a sudden, the dream took on some action. Before this, the dream is pretty boring. You know what it is? It's Nebuchadnezzar standing there looking at a statue and the statue standing there looking at Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you know, it's just no one said a word. There's no action. But all of a sudden, with the arrival of this stone, there is some drama taking place. The stone smote the image where? At its weakest point. Not at its head of gold, not at its breast of silver, not at its iron legs. It struck at its feet of clay. And the implosion and the disintegration of the statue occurred quickly. The whole colossal statue was pulverized into powder that Daniel described as the chaff of the summer threshing floors. What does that mean? Well, chaff, you know, is the light, very lightweight, inedible portion of grain. And during the process of harvesting, that is known as winnowing, you all know this, they would take the stalks of grain out on a windy day, and they would throw those stalks up in the air, and the wind would blow away the light chaff, and it would just disappear, dissipate into the air. But the grain, which was heavier, it would drop to the floor, and then they could collect the grain and make it into whatever, you know, bread, for, you know, collected it for consumption. So he says it's like the chaff, it's just blown away. With the pulverizing to dust of the statue by the stone and the aid of the rushing wind, and I don't know if the wind is symbolic of the Holy Spirit here or not. I know the stone is Christ, but anyhow, that's just me guessing, it never says in the interpretation. But with the aid of the rushing wind, there's no trace whatsoever of the once mammoth statue left to even be seen. There's no trace of it. All that's left is sand. That's it. It's gone completely. And in its place, the smiting stone grew into something exceeding more colossal than that statue had ever been. The stone grew to a great mountain. She came out of a mountain, the kingdom of heaven, and it made the mountain grew and it filled the earth. That's the kingdom of heaven come to earth, the kingdom of God on earth, filled the whole earth. It smote it on its weakest point, the feet and toes. The last Gentile world empire will be under the dictatorship of the Antichrist and his ten-toed confederacy. Now, if this world has thought that it has seen some evil, egotistical, mean-spirited, horrific, bloodthirsty men, such as Nebuchadnezzar, wanting to cut people in little pieces, he was not a great guy, <laughs> or Darius, who followed him uh, and actually threw Daniel into a lion's den, or then Alexander the Great, 
And how about all the Roman Caesars that followed in the, the Roman Empire and actually burned Christians at the stake and fed them to lions and all kinds of horrible things? And, and what have we seen since? We've seen horrible people like, uh, I don't know, we could go on and on. I always think of Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini and um, the Ayatollahs of Iran today and ISIS. You know, if the world has thought it's seen some really bad dudes, guess what? They haven't seen anything yet until the Antichrist comes along because, according to Daniel 7, he's going to be a composite of all the wild, horrible, bloodthirsty beasts that have ever existed. He's going to be a composite of all of them, and he's actually going to be possessed by Satan himself. So that is when the stone comes back, when the Antichrist is ruling. It strikes it on its feet and its toes. And when that stone comes, it's going to be a supernatural smiting stone that's going to alter the course of history. No more downward spiral of history. That smiting is a judgment action. It ruins. It doesn't regenerate. That's it. No more second chances. Now, we know that the stone pictures who? Who does it picture? I'm jumping to interpretation, but of course, um, it represents the Messiah. We know from this side, Jesus Christ, who will destroy the kingdoms of this world. Kingdoms that have dominated, oppressed, persecuted, and killed in mass his people. Jews and Christians. In the place of all the man-centered kingdoms, he's going to establish his own kingdom, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem, but his rule is going to cover the entire world. Uh, yeah, world. Seven times in the word of God, Jesus is called a stone. A stone is a symbol of strength and durability. A stone is firm, just as the truth of Christ in his word are firm, because they are true. You can build your life on the truths of this word. It is a rock. To be, you know, do you want to build a life? Do you want your life to count? To be something firm that goes on for all of eternity, that has an eternal influence? Something that won't implode one day on itself? Something that will last the winds of time? Something that won't sink in the sands of history past? And take the advice of Jesus himself. Don't be the foolish man who builds your life on sinking sand, like the godless world system. Build your life on rock that endures all eternity. So, right, let's all build our lives on this book and the truths of this book and the rock who is Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for every woman here and her hunger to know you better through a study of your word. I pray that you will bless her. I pray that every single person here is indeed building their lives on the rock foundation of Jesus Christ and the truth of him found in your word, that no one is trying to go through life on sinking sand. For as you say, that is utter foolishness, because when the storm comes and when judgment comes, it will be gone, obliterated, no more. But knowing you, we will go on into eternity and spend eternity in your presence, getting to know you more and more, deeper and deeper, praising you, loving you, serving you. What so much to look forward to. Lord, thank you for this time together again, and I pray you'll use every woman this week to be your light and your salt and your 
wonderful witness. Jehovah's Witnesses is really what we are, the true Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.